we have been looking at these three chapters in terms of the privilege that it is to be the people of God. And uh, so let's uh, bow our heads and ask the Lord to continue to bless um, our time in His Word. Father, we, we are grateful for you revealing yourself as you have. Uh, and it is an, an immense and an amazing thing uh, for you to reveal yourself as you are. It's no wonder that it took thousands of years and it took relationships with, with millions of people and it took um, 40-some-odd authors to be inspired in 66 books to write it down in, to encapsulate what we could understand about uh, how you've revealed yourself. Now, Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we thank you, Lord, for your written word. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to know you better. Lord, we have seen illustrated in your relationship with Israel that your promises do not fail. Your covenants do not um, fall short, even though um, your privileged people might uh, reject you, might walk away from you, might um, not be the shining example of what it is to respond to your grace. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity it is to better understand that and to better understand our relationship with you as your privileged people, the church. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question that's being asked here in Romans 9 through 11, once again, is what about Israel? In light of all these promises that we have been given as God's people, what about Israel? They have been God's people. They have been a part of his covenants. They have been uh, walked with him so closely. Has God's word failed? Romans 9, 6 asks that question. Has God's covenant failed? Are his covenants faulty? Are his covenants not trustworthy? Chapter 9 answered that question, no, because God is sovereign. Chapter 10 answers that question, has God's word failed? Is God's covenants faulty? With the same answer, no, because man is morally responsible for the choices that we make. We'll see in chapter 11 that it also answers the question, no, God's covenants do not fail because God's eternal plan is at work in our time frame, in our world. And we'll see that in chapter 11. We've seen the heartache of the Apostle Paul as he writes this. His prayer, his longing is for his people, the Jews, to come to salvation. And we've seen also the explanation of their path away from salvation. Summarized in Romans 9.32, it said, in answering the question, is it possible, are we saying here that the Jews, even though they pursued righteousness according to the law, they did not achieve that righteousness, and Gentiles who did not have a law have achieved a righteousness through Christ? How is that possible? And the answer, speaking about the Jews, was that it's because they did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. 
And so we've been looking at chapter 10 in terms of becoming God's people in light of our responsibility to respond in total trust. That's kind of the angle that chapter 10 gives us about what it means to become God's privileged people. So let's read uh, chapter 10 one more time together. And I don't always read through an entire chapter um, when we're looking at, um, you know, just a, a few verses from it. But, but I think the context here is, is just too valuable. Romans chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, speaking of the Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, Who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Verses 16 through 21, it answers this question that one writer writes. If evangelism is made up of a series of successive stages, beginning with the herald, being sent, and ending with sinners being saved, how is the unbelief of Israel to be explained? We could very easily ask that in terms of how is the unbelief of anyone who has sat 
under the, the presence of the gospel in America, especially in, in the years when, when it wasn't being ridiculed, how is it that people can sit under the presence of the truth and not be saved? Or as we've been looking at this issue of becoming God's privileged people, how is it that a person will shirk their moral responsibility and reject the good news of Jesus Christ? We're looking here this morning at stopping short of salvation. I found something interesting um, I can't remember how I came across this. I think it was, uh, was uh, just one of the opening screens on my computer. It, it, I started looking into these, these places where you find these hexagonal shapes of, of earth, of rock and stuff. One of these is called uh, Devil's Tower in um, Wyoming. And another one is called the Giant's Causeway in Ireland. And I'm sure there's other places too. And what, what I was um, kind of interested in was the folklore, the legends behind these, these rock uh, formations where it seems like rock just kind of grew in a hexagonal shape straight up and stacked together. As far as the uh, Devil's Tower, the, the um, Native American legend was that a bear, a giant bear was chasing these Indian children and um, the earth raised up at that spot where Devil's Tower is on that plateau, and the and the Indian children were saved by be, being on top of that plateau. But the giant bear scratched the sides of the plateau and created these these uh, uh, straight lines down the sides of this of this uh, Devil's Tower. The other one, the De- uh, the Giant's Causeway um, in Ireland. The belief was this giant actually brought these hexagonal shaped poles and stacked them in order to get to his uh, lover who was a female giant who was on an island over to the side. And I thought of Rod and Leanne's new grandson um, and I thought it's a new nickname for him. His name's Finn. But the name of this giant was Finn McCool. (laughs) I mean, how awesome is that? Finn McCool. But, you know, as far as these folklore and these legends, they're kind of like, wow, that's interesting. I never knew that. Because it's not an historical event. Okay, and it doesn't carry a lot of consequence. And it doesn't really matter what you do with it. As long as you don't, like, base your life on it, right? That, you know, you'd be worried about giant bears chasing your children around, I guess. But when it comes to the gospel, this is not folklore. This is not some legend. This is an historical event in where the God of the universe stepped into our time and sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. It happened once and once for all. And it's of great consequence. It was of great consequence for him. It's of great consequence for anyone in what they choose to do with the gospel. And it will affect a person's life from then to eternity, what they do with it. Walking in relationship with God, which stretches out into eternity free of sin, or walking separated from God, which if they die in that state, stretches out from eternity free of God. 
which only ends in darkness and pain and separation and regret and hopelessness. The gospel is good news. It's life or death. To not believe or to confess or to call on the name of the Lord is to fall short of salvation. The main idea I'm getting across to you this morning is saving faith involves yielding to the gospel, which goes beyond simply hearing or even understanding it. Saving faith involves yielding to the gospel, which goes beyond simply hearing or even understanding it. Last week, we looked at how God's life-saving, life-changing gospel is pocket-burning good news. We should be looking for opportunities to share it. And this morning, we're kind of asking, why wouldn't someone receive the good news of the gospel as a free gift and be saved from the penalty of their sins? Even understanding it. And maybe you guys even know someone. It's like, well, well, have you ever heard the gospel? Yeah, you know, I know. Sin, stuff, Jesus died, rose from the dead. He paid for my sins. That's cool. Or maybe even someone, you know, well, we won't stay there. Romans 10, 9 through 10 shared with us the simplicity of the gospel. How simple it is to be saved. Quoting what Moses said, it, it is so close to you. It is, it is in your mouth. It is in your heart. And Paul flowed out of that with verses 9 through 10 saying, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And, and verses 14 through 15 gave us a clear process of helping people to respond to the gospel. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are, are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Today we'll be looking at from our verses 16 through 21, implications for all of mankind regarding our responses to the gospel message. And kind of asking that question, that underlying question, how is it that people can fall short of salvation? But I want to just kind of mention the significance of the statements from Isaiah in this passage. Uh, the Jewish readers, we've talked before about how the church in Rome was made up of Jewish and Gentile believers. And in this section, Paul is kind of explaining things mainly to these Jewish believers within the church. And these quotes from Isaiah are standing out to them, are striking them. In some ways, it's like Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in which he says, how is it that you being a teacher of Israel do not understand these things? And so, understand first, I want you to see, Paul quoted from Isaiah 52, verse 7, when he said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. 
It's only a matter of verses after that in Isaiah's prophecies that we see in chapter 53, the very next chapter, the very beginning of the very next chapter, which is the beginning of what we know is this, the prophecy of Jesus as the suffering servant that Isaiah asks the question, after saying how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, it says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one to whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So I just share that to say, the Jewish readers were picking up huge cues about what Paul is talking about from the quotations he's making in Isaiah. So the first of these implications that we see from verses 16 through 17 is this. Saving faith involves yielding to the gospel. Saving faith involves yielding to the gospel. And that should be slide 14 there. We read in Romans 10, 16 through 17. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Paul makes this statement here. And I think I've probably lost you talking about all these verses in Isaiah and stuff like that. Recall he's coming up and he's talking about the beauty of of sharing the gospel, and he's quoting from Isaiah and saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then he throws this big contrasting statement in there. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And quotes from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Now the NIV, when it talks about this obeying the gospel, it's kind of a weaker translation when it says they have not accepted the good news. I think the New American Standard is a little bit better. They have not heeded, they did not heed the good news. The idea of obeying here is a combination of words. It's to it's it's hupakuo. It's under and hear. To hear a command, or to hear a truth and to place oneself under it, to submit, to come under by submitting to what you are told. It's to submit or to respond appropriately to what is heard. Israel's rejection of Christ was predicted by Isaiah 53.1 as we've read. And Israel would put their faith wouldn't put their faith and their belief in the good news of Jesus Christ, as also quoted by John in John twelve thirty seven through 38, where he says, though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so when he comes up and he says, starts verse 17 with, so, it's a summary idea. It's basically saying, therefore, and, he, and he's summing up what's already been established. 
Faith comes from hearing. And he's making kind of a new statement that the content of what must be heard is the word about Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing is the word about Christ, the word of Christ. You might recall Christ is Jesus' title, the Messiah, the one true Messiah. If a person rejects the message about Jesus as the one true Messiah, they are rejecting the gospel. And that's how a person ends up disobedient to the gospel. I've shared with you before, I think, about Ravi Zacharias sharing as a young evangelist and sharing with a man from East Asia who was a Buddhist. And, And he brought him to a place where he says, so would you like to pray to receive Christ as your Savior? And the man was like, yes, of course, I'd love to do that. He's like, awesome. Wonderful. And he led him through a prayer of receiving Christ as a Savior. And he, and, he, and he says he can't believe what he heard because it just didn't fit what he expected. As the man lifted his eyes from having prayed to receive Christ, he says, Ah, oh, this is so wonderful. Now I both have Buddha and Jesus. It's a complete misconception, a misunderstanding of the fact that Jesus is his one true and only Savior. And it was a missing of the gospel and a missing of salvation. You see, we have this tendency to kind of act like turkeys or whatever those frogs are that like puff up this part underneath their lower jaw, right? I saw some uh, turkey buzzards this morning and I was looking over at them and they're kind of standing around each other and they're lifting up their, their wings like this and kind of walking around. It's kind of like, don't mess with me. And what are they doing? They're making themselves try to look bigger than they are, right? Or tom turkeys that walk out and they kind of inflate their chest. See, we have that tendency to do that when it comes to a relationship with God. Okay? I don't have sin. I can, I can make it on my own. I'm all right. See how big I am, God? And it's a rejection of the gospel. To submit, to respond to the gospel of Christ as our only Savior is not to say, okay, I did what I needed to do. Now give me salvation. You might have a misconception today as we, as we come to communion in our time of response. Okay, God, I'm doing what I need to do here. Now give me salvation. That's, that's just this. Because we are sinners and our only hope is to be saved by God's grace. Instead of being, I did what I need to do, now give me salvation, it's the gospel undid me. Praise God for saving me. Because I had nothing worth saving. To recognize that I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. And it's only because Jesus died and rose from the dead and made a way possible for me and gave it to me as a free gift because all the money that I would pay for it is tainted with sin. That was my only hope for salvation. 
Saving faith isn't a matter of being willing to hear and repeat the gospel like some sort of magic spell. Saving faith is describing is described as hearing and coming under the truth of the gospel, obeying the gospel. And it's something even more significant than simply understanding it even. I've seen in the case of Israel, many stop short of saving faith. We see this in Romans 10, 18 through 19. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, repeating that same uh, statement, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. The fact is, many stop short of saving faith, even though they hear the gospel and hear it clearly. Paul asked that question of Israel. Did they not hear? It's, a, it's an incredulous rhetorical question. Have they not heard? I like how the New American Standard says it. Surely they have never heard, have they? And the answer is, indeed, they have. Or as the NIV says, of course they did. This comes from Psalm 19.4 where, where he quotes here, their voice has gone out over to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And it's actually talking about general revelation or it's talking about the, the fact that the nature itself, God's creation itself, speaks of his righteousness, speaks of his power, speaks of him as our creator that we owe our lives to. When it talks about being to all the earth, it's gone out to the ends of the world. It's a hyperbole, and it's referring to the whole civilized world, the Roman Empire at that time. At that time, the church and the gospel had been spreading to the ends of the Roman Empire. And the Jews were seeing this. The Jews were watching this. They likely witnessed it spreading to all of the civilized world. It says, have they not heard? The term here is akuo. Have they not akuoed? But remember, it says, but they have not obeyed. Hupakuo. They've heard, but they have not put themselves under what they have heard. They have not obeyed the gospel. To yield to it, to submit to it. And it's easy enough for us to get someone hearing and it, without it registering. But it's also possible for someone to even understand the gospel and not come under it. And he asks that question. Because many stop short of saving faith even though they understand the gospel. Romans 10, 18 through 19 says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. The salvation of the Gentiles had been predicted as the way that God was going to seek to draw his people Israel to himself through their jealousy of the Gentiles. That even these Gentiles, these dirty Gentiles, us dirty Gentiles, would walk with God. And it was predicted all the way back in Deuteronomy. 
This is how I will call you back to myself when you walk away from me. I will call those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Goes back to Deuteronomy 32, 21. And when Jewish unbelievers saw the church of Jesus filling with Gentiles, they were to understand what was happening. Again, here's what's chilling to me. The term used here to describe Israel's understanding is gnosko. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's more than just kind of, okay, I know it's happening. It's like, I know what's going on here. I recognize this. It's not a matter that they were told and knew better. As uh, the commentator Denny writes, Surely you do not mean to say then, Israel did not understand. Above all nations, Israel ought to have understood a message from God. We've kind of had an illustration a little bit of the fact that trying to earn a relationship with God through our works or having our works involved with it is like trying to climb the outside of a building. You know, if two people are like, well, I'm going to the top of that building. Oh, really? I'm going to the top of the building too. Excellent. Great. I'll see you there. And uh, one gets out his climbing gear and he starts, you know, climbing the outside of it. Whereas the other one goes in to use the elevator. The difference between those two is it's an example of getting to the top by God's grace, being the elevator, or getting to the top by God's by works. Personal works. And again, it kind of gives a picture of what it means. Uh, the person who fails at one point is guilty of all. But imagine that person climbing the outside is, is seeing these people riding up the elevator and getting to the top. And they're like, no, I'm committed. This is, this is my way. That's kind of describing what should be going on with Israel here, with the Jewish people. As they're seeing the church fill up with Gentiles who have a relationship with God, who are celebrating this Messiah Jesus. And they understood. You know, they say the greatest distance isn't even that distance between the person at the ground floor and the top of that building. The greatest distance ever as you've probably heard, is the distance between the head and the heart. And that's what's being talked about here. And that's what you know people, where it's just the problem. And maybe even that's the problem for you. You understand everything about the gospel, but you haven't put yourself under it. Said it's not about me. It's not about my works. It's not about what I do. It's about Christ. It's about his glory, his righteousness for me, his righteousness covering for me. If your response to the question, why should God let you into heaven, has anything to do with your works, you may be falling short of salvation. Take a warning from Israel's experience. Did they know better? Yes. Did they understand? Yes. And you could be on your way to hell quoting all kinds of verses about why God would never let you go there.
It's only by the righteousness of Christ that any of us are able to walk in relationship with God. This leads us to our third implication here, and that's saving faith is a work of grace. We see this in verses 20 through 21. It says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We find here two types of people that are offered God's unconditional grace of salvation. Those who are not seeking him, in this case, it's, it's believing Gentiles eventually. And those who are rejecting him, in this case, it's unbelieving Jews says, saving faith is a work of grace even for those who aren't seeking him, as we see here. He says, Isaiah says so bold, is so bold as to say, and I, and I think Paul is kind of pointing here that, that any prophet that spoke about the fact that Gentiles were coming into a relationship with God had to be bold to say it. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Unless we think that God came to call those who were only seeking him, remind yourself of Romans 3, there is none who seek after God. It's not even a person seeking that they can say, hey, look, it's about, look what I am. I'm a seeker. It's still God doing something in them. But the point is that compared to what Israel should have been doing, the Gentiles were totally clueless as well as godless. But the Gentiles end up trophies of God's grace. And that chapter 11 is going to explain to us God's greater sovereign plan is being carried out here. And what we understand that we're in right now is a time of the Gentiles, but it will come to a close. But again, the Old Testament quote is evidence that the Jews should have seen the rise of of the church as a sign of God's action here. And the quotes that explain both God's grace accepted by the Gentiles and his grace to those who, the rejecting Jewish unbelievers, both come from Isaiah 65. And I'll just read a few of those verses and I'll come back to it in a moment. But he says, In Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 5, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Then in verse 2, he says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. And there he's speaking about the Jews. Again, the writer Denny says, the very calling of the Gentiles predicted and interpreted as it is in the passages quoted should, have, should itself have been a message to the Jews which they could not misunderstand. It should have opened their eyes as a lightning flash to the position in which they stood, that of men who had forfeited their place among the people of God and provoked them out of jealousy and to welcoming the righteousness of faith. 
And in the case of Israel or others who reject the gospel, God's grace is even offered to those rejecting him. Where he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The arm straps stretch all day long. They're a symbol of the incessant pleading love which Israel through all of its history had consistently despised. Now imagine in, in this idea of this building that, that we're getting to the top of, those by God's grace in the elevator and those trying to do it by works by the outside of the building. Imagine that presidential suite at the top of the building. Like that's heaven, okay? That's, that's, that's get where you get to just spend time with God in his presence. And both people are trying to get there, one by God's grace and one by works. And that's the top floor presidential suite known as heaven. But for those who will be there, this is what the conversations will sound like. One will say, I had no interest in God. I was walking absolutely the opposite direction and bam! He woke me up to my need for the gospel. The other one might say, you know what? I, I grew up knowing about God. I was very religious, but I was trying to scrape and claw my way up the side of the building. And bam, God opened my eyes to the need, my need for the gospel, my need for the fact that it is Jesus' righteousness alone. That's what I believe the conversations will be like. Both trophies of God's grace. And the question that we're left with is why? Why would some who are so close hearing the gospel, understanding the gospel, stop short of salvation? Why would someone fail to heed, to yield, to come under what they hear and obey the gospel? What are they saying when they refuse to yield to the gospel, to let God regenerate them, make them reborn, remake them? And certainly there are plenty who reject the gospel because they don't want anything to do with God. What's more sad for me in this situation is those who reject the gospel while they believe that they have a relationship with him. It may be a God of another religion that they're confusing with the one true God. It may be the God of the Bible that they think that they're following him, yet they're not yielding under his righteousness alone. It's His righteousness, not mine. I want you to hear me as I read Isaiah 65 again. And hear it play out when God talks about he will make, he he shows himself to a Gentile people that is not looking for him whatsoever. And then he comes back and he talks about how he holds out his hands to a Jewish nation that's steeped in idolatry. And what's heartbreaking is in their response to him. So again, I'll close with Isaiah 65, 1 through 5. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. And speaking of the Jews, I spread out my hands 
all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat and is in their vessels, who say, and here's their response to, to God, keep, your, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. That at its root is at the heart of a salvation by works. God, I'm holy enough. I'm too holy for you. I'm too holy to come on my knees and take a free gift of salvation that's not based on anything that I have done. Keep to yourself. And that is why a salvation by any form of works is a rejection of God. It's not just the irreligious, it's the legalistic too that disobey the gospel and tell God, I'm too holy for you. And in our time of response, when we come to the communion table, when you take that bread that was broken, that represents Christ's broken body for you, and that cup that represents his blood poured out for you, know something, that was the only way. It was going to take God himself sacrificing himself for sinners like us. And thank God that he did. And that should be a celebration. It shouldn't be a groveling in our sins. It shouldn't be a, a hopelessness of, oh, look at me and I'm still a sinner. God knows that. It's a celebration of you as a trophy of his grace and that alone. I encourage you to meditate on that and when you're ready during these two songs to come and enjoy the gospel in communion. Let me close this in prayer.